Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Bob Weber. Bob was the guitarist for the Moonrakers, the most popular group in Denver during the mid-1960s. The end of that decade set the stage for Sugarloaf as the cream of several Denver bands came together. Sugarloaf scored two big national hits. Green-Eyed Lady peaked at number three in 1970, and Don't Call Us, We'll Call You reached the top ten in 1974. Welcome, Bob. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. What brought your family to Colorado from Ogden, Utah? A job for my dad. He was very ambitious. When I was born, he was a mechanic on a railroad in Ogden, working in a roundhouse, working on trains, and he didn't want to do that the rest of his life. He was politically motivated. He got a lot of connections. He got elected clerk and recorder in Ogden, and then parlayed that into some other contacts and moved to Denver when I was 10. It's not the metropolitan area that it is now, but compared to Ogden, Utah, it's New York City. Had a transistor radio, used to carry that everywhere I went. Listening to Kim Radio and the hits and just got engrossed with the idea of recorded music and live music. KIMN, the dominant top 40 music station in Denver, it was coming out of every shop, every car. It was ubiquitous at the time. You got your first guitar at age 13? Yep. Down on Larimer Street, that's back when they had the pawn shops and lots of homeless people down on Larimer Street. My dad bought me a cowboy guitar, just a little flat top, three-quarter size with a cowboy painted imprint on the top. Banged around on that, then went to Sears and got a silver tone arch top, which probably be worth a million bucks now. <laughs> I'm left-handed, and when I picked up a guitar, I just held it, strumming it with the left hand and trying to finger it with the right hand, like Hendrix. I kind of messed around, and then right away, my parents said, you need to take lessons from this guy, Max Levette, in Aurora. And he was a violinist and a guitar player, and he was very, very strict about doing things the right way. He said, you're going to turn the guitar around and play it correctly. You're going to fret it with your left hand, you're going to strum with your right, or I'm not taking you as a student. So I did that. Seemed to be a little uncomfortable in the start, but, you know, I don't know (laughs) any difference. I don't know any difference now. Wow. uh, Yeah. Maybe I'm playing backwards in my mind. Mind is connected to the wrong place. <laughs> Since I can't brush my teeth with my opposite hand, yeah. it's pretty amazing you could be yeah. a world-class musician. That yeah, way. so that was an interesting start to the whole thing. Your first band was the Vaqueros. You're yeah. in junior high school? Yeah. When I started taking lessons, I was reading music, going through the Mel Bay books, learning how to play orchestral chords, learning how to read lead sheets, and learning all the positions on the guitar. So I'd play that, but I wasn't very interesting. I just like going to school. I was listening to The Ventures. I was listening to a bunch of instrumental guitar bands in that time. I had a little record player, and I would sit there and listen to The Ventures song, like Walk Don't Run, da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da-da. I had had enough guitar lessons. I knew where the chords were. So I could listen for the tones going up or down the neck. I'd just pick those songs out on my own, self-teach myself. Then there were a couple of guys at school 
Al Kemp, who was a guitar player, and Bob Raymond, who was a guitar player. We had so many guitar players, like a guitar orchestra. We took Raymond's guitar and took the top two strings off and tuned the other four strings down so it was a bass. It just sounds like a cardboard box flapping in the wind, but that was his bass. And then we knew Bob McVitie. We all played sports together. So Bob McVitie said, I'll play drums. And so let's try to do a little band here in Al Kemp's basement. So that's where we started was kind of get together on Saturday and play these instrumental tunes. We went and played at school one time. I think it might have been either a talent show or a school dance. You know, we actually got paid money and people loved it. So we said, we need to start a band. So we called it the Vaqueros. There was a non-commissioned officers club at Lowry. We used to play on Sundays at the NCO club in the Air Force Base. A lot of the people were from back east. We're playing these instrumentals and they want to hear doo-wop type stuff. So that was always a little bit of a tension, but they're okay with it. Kids 13, 14 years old playing for these guys in the military. Parents had to take us. Absolutely, yeah. There was a phase with a stage band with a female vocalist. Yep, and that horn. was Joel Brandis in the Mile High Five. I started taking lessons from a guy named Mickey McKee, who was a protege or an understudy of Johnny Smith. He was down on 11th and Sherman or downtown Denver. I was learning all these jazz chord melody things and reading advanced lead sheets. He got a call from Joel Brandis. Actually, Joel Brandis' dad called, said we need a guitar player. Came an audition and they liked me, and so I did the guitar in this stage band. Had piano, keyboard, upright bass, a couple of horns. Joel played sax and clarinet. There were a couple of other horns, and then a female singer. So we play bar mitzvahs, any number of business parties, and just the usual fare for that kind of an orchestra. It was a good orchestra, and we did well. But people kept coming up and asking for rock and roll because we're playing all the old standards from the 30s and 40s. Female <laughs> vocalists up there singing, My Heart Belongs to Daddy, and they want to hear Johnny Be Good. I just happened to know Johnny Be Good. So <laughs> played a couple of those tunes, and people went nuts. Joel said, well, hey, you know, there may be a market for this. Joel was a great promoter. He still is, still working in the business, promoting bands, booking them. So he saw the light, and that's when we evolved to the classics. Another guitar band with Van Dorn, a guy named Doug Dolph, myself, and Brandis, and Bob McVitie on drums. I think we were really copying the astronauts' set list, because they were the biggest band at the time, yeah. You were smitten with the Beach Boys for a while. You evolved into the surfing. Yeah, classics. you know, the Beach Boys came on the scene and they just took over the music business. Of course, we decided that we want to do some surfing tunes, and then we started doing a lot of surfing tunes. And we said, well, we need to change the name of the band to the Surfing Classics. So, really, didn't change the look. We didn't come out with Pendleton shirts and Hibachi sandals and all that, and drive a Woody to the gig. We still the same old guys. The classics brought in Denny Flanagan. A couple of guys who were promoters, Holden Lewis, got interested, had some money, wanted to do back a band. So we sat down, brainstormed, we decided we wanted to bring in something different. Doug Dolph, who was playing guitar, was going to go off to medical school, and his parents didn't want him playing at a band anymore. Joel had come in contact with Flanagan. We sat around and rehearsed a bit, and Somebody came up with a bright idea that we would change the name to the Moonrakers. At that point in time, Moonraker was a big James Bond. The book was out. 
that's when Hogan Lewis decided that what we needed to do was dress like James Bond, and we would go out and hit the world as the Moonrakers, and the best way to introduce the Moonrakers was to go up against the top competition in the area, and that was the astronauts. So they booked the DU Student Union and put us up against the astronauts as a battle of the bands. Everybody did well, astronauts did well, we did well. That was the beginning. Flanagan's out there, the opening song was Bumble Boogie, and so that became the trademark opening sound for the Moonrakers. Then we started showing up on big stages and Battle of the Bands at D-Leeches and Lakeside. It launched just a whole nother level, just like flipping a switch. You play in high school dances, all of a sudden now you're on stage opening for national acts. It was a very clever approach that the promoters had, changing the name and Flanning would do handstands on his piano and he was into the Mick Jagger thing, walking away from the piano and going out in front and singing and getting the crowd to participate. So it was a kind of an overnight sensation. You had four singles hit the charts locally on KIMN radio, the biggest being You'll Come Back. You went out to Los Angeles to record. We came in contact with Roger Christian, who was a big L.A. radio personality at the time. He was working with the Beach Boys. So they were looking for bands. They got connected with us. And so we went out to do some recording. And we were familiar with the Bandbox Studios in Denver, which were kind of meager and weird sound. So we're thinking, oh, going to L.A., man, we're going to be in the big studios. Well, we ended up being in the Bandbox of Hollywood, it sounded like they had a one-track. It's probably a two-track. The only thing that was really a sales point for the music was the amount of enthusiasm. You listen back to those tracks, we played a lot of stuff probably 25% faster than it should have been. It was really aggressive. Didn't know we were doing that at the time, but it sounded kind of raw. It was a garage sound for sure. So we recorded a couple of 45s worth of music and it got released on Tower Records. Kim locked onto it and started pushing it, and yeah, you come back, knocked Louie Louie out of the number one spot. We were number one for five weeks. So because of that, we became very famous in the area. We could pull into the McDonald's in Colorado and Mississippi, and people were mobbing us. It was really strange. When you get the fame, I guess that's great, but looking back on it, are you kidding me? People think we're the Beatles or something? I don't know. We opened for the Beach Boys, we opened for Sonny and Cher. I mean, there's any number of few jacks that we opened for. The next time we went to L.A., I mean, we were still doing the uh, James Bond look with the black tuxes, the tux ties. Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone was out, and the birds were really big in that area. And so we saw the birds, and we got rid of the James Bond stuff and started wearing Hollywood hippie clothes, the bell bottoms, and with stripes and faux leather jackets and striped velour tops and the real long hair and 
flipped the whole Moonrakers as a James Bond emulation upside down. And that was actually even more successful because now you're bringing something from the West Coast that you kind of owned. Everybody else was stuck in the brocade jackets and black pants and skinny ties. Then all of a sudden we're coming in with this new look, the new Hollywood hippie look. Again, it was just another turbo boost to what was going on. You went through several membership changes in the Moonrakers. You know, in 65, we were doing really well, and we kind of got into a place where a few of us in the band wanted to do things that were maybe a little more FM-oriented. In those days, you had the AM radio, and then you had the FM, the heavy stuff, the stuff the freaks were playing. Some of us wanted to play that kind of music, and some people didn't. Joel and Van Dorn were kind of in one camp, and then myself and McVitie were in another camp, and so Flanagan and I and McVitie split off into a different band called the Baker's Opera Company. I played the sitar because we were listening to a lot of Ravi Shankar at the time, and McVitie played tabla, and so we put some big pillows out on the stage, and we'd do a couple of ragas, which air quotes on the raga, just emulating what we were hearing on Ravi Shankar records. People loved it. But we really didn't have any driving force in writing music. Flanagan had a couple of things he wrote in the Moonrakers, but we really never came up with much of anything in the Beggar's Opera Company. Now it's so So Beggar's Opera Company, we went to L.A. one time, tried to record, and we had a dearth of original music. So we played at Family Dog. We played a lot of concerts as a Beggar's Opera Company. But it wasn't that same supercharged success that the Moonrakers had. So we decided to resurrect the Moonrakers. And Van Dorn and Joel Brandis had kept it going. So we decided to do a Moonraker reunion, brought the original band back together again. But at that time, McVidia wanted to go off and do something else, so we needed a drummer, and we found out about Jerry Corbetto, who was like a childhood prodigy drummer. So we brought him in and put this new version of the Moonrakers. I think we called it Moonrakers version 2, and that was Brandis, Dorn, Flanagan, myself, and Corbett on drums. We got Frank Slay, who had done Strawberry Alarm Clock and Freddie Cannon hits. And he came out and listened to us, so we decided we'd go with him and go to L.A. and record. Corbetta played drums great, but he says, I don't want to be a drummer. My real instrument is keyboard. I want to play B3. Well, he was going to DU School of Music at the time. His chops were amazing on the organ because that's what he's doing every day. So we said, okay, maybe at some point we'll do that. But right now, you got to play drums. This Moonrakers 2.0 we came up with a number of singles, but it just didn't seem to have the same level of fervor that we had on the original Moonrakers. Typically played a lot of college venues, dances, whatever. Somewhat successful, but kind of floundering. It wasn't really going anywhere. So Corbetta says, I really want to play keyboards, so let's start a different band. So I mean, we just threw caution to the wind and 
jumped out of the Moonrakers and Corbetta says, let's start a super band. You can pull the bass player and I'll pull the drummer. So Jerry knew of Myron Pollock. He had been in Bob Yazel's band, the super band. I said, well, you know, I'd like Bob Raymond to play bass in the band. So came together with this four-piece band. That was Chocolate Hair. This was the era of the supergroup. Yep. The best players from the best bands coming together to collaborate. We wanted players that could take us to a different place, not just two-minute and 30-second hit records. We wanted to jam. Jerry had a lot of composition experience. I was really into jazz. So we really wanted to do something that was more serious. And we're driven by Led Zeppelin, Vanilla Fudge, Deep Purple. Jerry played B3 in a clavinet, and I played very loud and fuzzy guitar, and Raymond played loud bass, and Myron was probably the loudest drummer on earth. We wanted to be a heavy band, and we were. Now, where the Moonrakers had played two nights a week and rehearsed a lot, Chocolate Hair played five or six nights a week for years. Uh, Got your chops down to the nth degree. Playing the bar circuit throughout Colorado, Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs. And that's also where we developed a group mentality where you could be jamming and you didn't have to give a visual or verbal cue to somebody. You just start leaning in a certain direction melodically or rhythmically. Everybody would pick it up and you just go there. And you don't get that from sitting around talking. You don't get that from rehearsing. You get that from playing because then it becomes your vocabulary where you're talking to each other. Maybe it's subliminal. I don't know. But we had a great ability to change tempo, to change chord progressions, to change melodic lines on the fly. Jerry once described your relationship. He said you were fire and ice. He was the Italian from North Denver, could play the accordion, right? (laughs) Emotional. You were the linear thinker, Mm -hmm. 4.0 student, Mm -hmm. went on to be an aerospace engineer. Mm -hmm. But you respected him. You allude to his training in music theory and Mm -hmm. harmony. His melodic and harmonic ideas were probably years advanced from where I was. But my mechanical skills on the guitar and just understanding of music let me keep up. I wasn't taking him anywhere melodically or harmonically, but maybe rhythmically. I was going to engineering school, and it's nuts. You play till one in the morning, and then you got to drive back home and be at class at eight o'clock in the morning. I kind of had two personalities going to one in the band and then be able to solve problems in the classes during the day. I always thought of Jerry just as a really ambitious, dedicated musician. Chocolate Hair recorded demos with producer Frank Slay, got the band signed with Liberty Records. That demo included covers of Train Kept a Rollin', yep. the Yardbirds classic, Chest Fever by the band, but that was paired with an original called Bach Doors Man. Yeah, uh-huh. Kudos to Frank Slay for his vision 
we were inclined just to copy other people's work. It didn't really matter to us. We had to pay somebody else the mechanicals on tunes. We just wanted to play. Jerry did an organ solo thing at a very slow tempo. You know, had a guitar part that I played in on top of it. And that was the intro to Chess Fever. We thought, okay, that's just the intro. Frank Slay took that and said, okay, we're going to call that Bach Doors Man, and you're going to get writing credit for it. I just got a royalty check about a week ago in the record of why they were sending me a royalty check. There was Bach Doors Man. So thank you, Frank Slay. Train kept a rolling. We did that without vocals. Chess Fever was written with vocals. And when we came back in to do the vocals, Frank said, do that as an instrumental. Didn't make any sense, but it got a lot of airplay. It was weird. That's why he was a producer. That's why we were musicians. The other thing that was interesting on that first record that we did for Liberty, we brought in a couple of things that we had recorded with Moonrakers 2.0. And so there were actually some tunes that really had nothing to do with that four-piece group that ended up on that album. Liberty wanted to release the demo. You said, well, we'd like to do one more song. One more song that we really didn't have at that point. Bob McVitie came back on board to play drums on that. And it turned out to be Green-Eyed Lady. Yep. Jerry got a little help with lyrics Mm -hmm. from people in California. He said he wrote the lyrics on a taco bag over lunch one day. It's either Del Taco or something else was just down from the studio. We We recorded this stuff in original sound right on sunset. It's an interesting thing. Sometimes songs come to you in 30 or 40 minutes or an hour, and sometimes... Songs just refuse to come to you over a period of years, and you work on them, and they just never get there. And I think that's kind of the way Green-Eyed Lady was. They just sat down and picked a title and then wrote the words underneath it. And how that all blended together with the track that we had jammed, we had recorded the track, and then some number of months later, I came out and Jerry came out from Denver to L.A., and Jerry sang the vocal, and I played the lead guitar part and Jerry played the organ solo in the middle. But the basic track was already done, and so they created the words around what we had already laid down, which is a very difficult way to write a song, but that's the way they did it, and it seemed to work. Green-eyed lady, lovely lady Strolling slowly towards the sun Green-eyed lady Ocean lady Soothing every raging wave that comes Green-eyed lady, passions lady It was not an inordinate amount of lyrics they wrote. There was no chorus. There was just that one melodic line, and the cadence of the line carried throughout the whole song. It wasn't your typical verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus on out. It was a different type of a structure, but it was fresh and it worked.
When we went in and I put the lead and Jerry put his organ lead and then he sang the vocal overdub and then we listened to it in playback, it sounded like a hit record. I can't tell you what it was about it, but it just sounded like you're listening to the number one song on a radio. That's probably very arrogant, but that was the way we felt. You had gone out to L.A. previously and succumbed to the idea that you had to be in the best studio, and it's not necessary. You did that with a good engineer. Great engineer. Paul Buff was Frank Zappa's engineer, and Frank Zappa was my idol for a long time, and Paul Buff never said a word about that. Just worked with us, you know, tried to get the best sound he could. It was a room, probably about 30 by 40, It had, I think, a nine-foot ceiling. Every inch of the floor was carpeted, so there was no liveness to the room. It was almost like an anechoic chamber. The guitar amps and the Leslie and everything in the same room, so basically playing live. And uh, headphones on, just going for it, just playing, just jamming. We had Frank Slay there giving us the urgency. Uh, Boys, we're gonna be done here by two o'clock. That's all we paid for today, and so we had Daddy pushing us along there, no indulgence on running over or paying overtime to the studio folks. Prior to the release of Green-Eyed Lady, there had been a name change. When you signed your record deal, the legal department met with Jerry and said the name Chocolate Hair had racial overtones. The real thing that was going on, Frank Slay really locked on to Jerry as being another Freddie Cannon or Frankie Val, whatever. So I think Frank Slay's intent all along was to tailor Jerry toward a solo career. His vision was fancy suits uh, and none of this hippie stuff black pants and and Las Vegas shirts because Frank Slay wanted to call the band Gold. When it was decided Chocolate Hair was not going to work, that was his input. And we said, no, no, we're not not going there. At the time that this all came about, I was living on Sugarloaf Mountain in Boulder in a little A-frame with my wife and our son, and, and there were a couple other people living there with us. We're coming out of Boulder in the late 60s, and all of that implies, that's when we kicked it around and I said, why don't we just call it Sugarloaf? Well, to the record company, it was like top 40 bubblegum. To them, it was a bubblegum name. You don't hear much about that term anymore, but they liked it. They said, Sugarloaf, yeah, yeah, let's go for it. We're thinking heavy, they're thinking top 40. That's where we ended up. So you went on tour in support of Green-Eyed Lady, which yes, hit sir. number three in 1970. Played with a lot of amazing acts. That we did. This was back in the time when Barry Fay was really hitting his stride and doing a lot of concerts. Joel Brandis and Barry were working together, and Joel had gone from being in the band to being our manager. And we wanted to be with a big booking agent, so we went with William Morris, which is one of the most established agencies in L.A. and Hollywood, and handling all the big people. And we thought that was something that you really wanted to do. Well, the guy that was handling us, we had had Cherrywood office and driving a Mercedes, and 
That's what he was worried about, not worried about getting us gigs. We went out on the road with Deep Purple. Eric Burden and War became a real close association. We became friends with all those guys and did a lot of dates with Jethro Tull. ZZ Top went on a great tour with the Guess Who, became very good friends with Burton Cummings and all the guys in the band. Did a lot of dates with the Sticks. Tours with REO Speedwagon. In the beginning, we did a show with The Who at Mammoth Gardens. Loudest band I've ever heard. Played with the Doobie Brothers, Steely Dan. Did a festival with Joe Walsh and James Gang. Big venue at Florida State University with the Chambers Brothers back when they were really hot. Did a thing in Detroit with Roxy Music. We didn't know anything about Roxy Music, and those Roxy Music fans were there and all dressed up in their Roxy Music fan gear, and we come out playing Midwest hippie stuff, and that was kind of a clash of cultures. Chuck Berry did a New Year's show with Alice Cooper where he came out and cut the chicken's head off and blood squirting on the stage. Charlie Daniels did some concert dates in Hawaii with Smokey Robinson. So yeah, we were on the road and we had good people to play with. The nonstop touring didn't allow much time for songwriting. You invited Bob Yazel from Beast, the Colorado Springs band, to join on guitar and vocals as much for his writing as much oh, as absolutely. his playing. I mean, he had a repertoire of things that he had written, great songs. We didn't have to sit there and try to do anything but arrange them for our band. He pretty much dominated the second album, Spaceship Earth. but took us down a divergent path from what that four-piece band was that did Green-Eyed Lady. Tongue-in-Cheek was the track, and edit of it became a minor single uh-huh. in then Sugarloaf added more band members, Bobby Pickett on yep. vocals for a time, concentrated on touring, and then a third drummer, Larry Ferris, who yep. was also from Beast. The core of Jerry and Larry, Bob Raymond and you, recorded I Got a Song. that album didn't have a hit, Jerry was imperiously spurned in trying to get another record deal, and that resulted in a song about the fickle music industry, Don't Call Us, We'll Call You, a novelty song. Yes. We had a guy that we knew from Denver, John Carter. He got to be far up in the A&R echelons at Capitol Records, and Slay knew him too, and so Slay got him and Jerry together, and they wrote Don't Call Us. It was certainly Carter's experience being a capital. I mean, he's A&R. He's basically handling people's lives. They come in and they audition and he either signs them or he doesn't. And he signs them and they record and they toss them in the trash. You know, he had the insight on that. 
assistance, directory assistance, every quote two on two. Say, hey, AMR, this is Mr. Rhythm and Blues. He said hello and put me on hold. To say the least, the cat was cold, he said. Don't call us, we'll call you, spelled out the CBS Records phone number and a general White House number, touchtone style. Yeah. There was some brushback. Corbetta said he was contacted by an official-looking guy from the State Department who wanted <laughs> to know why people were calling the White House. Yeah. Did you get spattered in that? I didn't, no. Jerry was living in L.A. I was living back here. Don't Call Us, We'll Call You peaked at number nine in 1975, but Sugarloaf broke up by 1977. In the interim, you and a mix of band members and studio musicians helped Jerry lay down his 1978 solo album, self-titled. And then after that, the players mostly dispersed to other pursuits. We had Green Eyed Lady, number three in the country, but it was in market to market to market because of the way that the record company promoted it. It would be number one in the Northwest, it'd be number one in the South, it'd be number one in the Midwest, it'd be number one in the Southwest. But because it was time-phased and they didn't jump on it consistently across the whole country, it never made it to number one nationally, although in all these markets it did. So that was our big hit. We tried so very hard to recreate the magic on the second album. Didn't have the promotion. We're going from playing big venues to playing small bars again, going from making three to 5,000 a night down to making 600 in Oklahoma City. So we went through that very difficult time and came up with this hit record and we got to the point where in late 74 into 75, now you're a two-hit record band. And all of a sudden you have totally different opportunities for what venues you're going to play, how many people you're going to have. So we're successful with the second record in a way that we didn't anticipate we would be. And we could have gone on to another record and had some sustainability, but the band ended up breaking up right there. Okay. And... Many of the reasons had to do with Jerry wanting to be a producer and wanting to, to be on his own and probably being pushed by Frank Slay to go ahead and step out there and be the star of the show. After we worked so hard to keep the thing together and actually got the success, it just went apart. After you left Sugarloaf, your education came into play. Oh, yeah. At the end of my first year of graduate school was when Green Eyed Lady hit. There's the fork in the road, and I chose the, the music. You were hard to get a hold of for many decades. That's right. Just the way that whole thing came apart, I didn't really have any really great feelings about how that ended up. But then I got jobs in aerospace, and it became unimportant. Early on when I was working in aerospace, I had a, a little trio. We played weddings and stuff like that just to keep going. Vinyl records, that was the way that Sugarloaf became popular and the records came off the shelves and okay, so that little part of your life is over with and you get involved in a new life. I was involved in aerospace and, and yeah, I was behind the green door and I probably was too hard to get a hold of. 
life after Sugarloaf was artistically lucrative for Jerry Corbetta. Oh, yeah. He co-wrote a couple of hits, one for Grace Jones and a duet between Peebo Bryson and Roberta Flack. He was also asked to join the Four Seasons for their 20th anniversary tour and continued to write and perform and tour as a full member with Frankie Valli for four years. He toured with the Classic Rock All-Stars until he retired, and we lost Jerry in 2016. Bob Raymond passed the following year. Bob Yazel and Larry Ferris are also deceased. Yep. You got the music bug again in retirement. You've got a new venture. Yeah, I've always looked at recording studios as almost holy places because of the experiences I've had in recording studios. In the days when Sugarloaf was active and even the Moonrakers, if you wanted to have a recording studio, you had to have a lot of financial backing or you had to be independently wealthy. With the advent of digital audio workstations, Pro Tools, and others, I left aerospace. I decided I was going to look into Pro Tools. had some instruction, and there were a lot of things available on the Internet, and I just started really getting into it. So I put together a little digital studio and recorded a few people, and it sounded good, and all of a sudden I got the bug that uh, this is what I really want to do. I really had a passion to do it. I decided that I was going to take some money and convert some part of my house into a a real project studio, design it from the ground up within the constraints of the space I had available. So I got a sound-treated environment and upgraded my gear to where I'm a hybrid digital and analog studio. And just as an aside, I started getting involved in bluegrass music in probably early 2000s got myself a couple of flat top guitars and I was studying Tony Rice and, and all the other really great players, Doc Watson and those guys. And Little did I know that bluegrass musicians are even more orthodox than classical musicians. I'm an improviser at heart and if I'm playing Salt Creek, you're going to hear some notes that maybe Tony Rice didn't use in his performance, but that's what I want to use and they don't want to hear that. So Kind of had to move away from bluegrass. I better play the guitar because I think I've really got the skills I've accumulated over the years. You got a guitar back in your hand. I love a happy ending. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite musician's joke? What does a guitar player do when he wins a million-dollar lottery? I don't know, Bob. He keeps gigging until the money runs out. <laughs> <laughs> Or what does a producer do when he wins a million-dollar lottery? He keeps signing bands till the money runs out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for indulging me. All right, buddy. (laughs) The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit Music. C-O-L-O-Music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a boulder-based, vertically integrated, consumer-focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. 
Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.